This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, I'm Cyphus, Forever Bookseller at Barnes & Noble. Today we are joined by the brilliant N.K. Jemison. Nora is a best-selling author of speculative fiction, short stories, novels, and comics. She is the first author in history to win three consecutive Best Novel Hugo Awards, all for her Broken Earth trilogy. She has also won a Nebula Award, two Locus Awards, and is a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Fellowship. In addition to writing, she has been a counseling psychologist, an educator, a hiker, and a biker, a gamer, and a gardener, and a political feminist anti-racist blogger. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thank you for, for interviewing me. Oh, you're welcome. So I was, uh, <laughs> this is, please, this is a pleasure of my time. I was recently at uh, New York Comic Con, so I suppose I have comics on my mind. However, uh, in truth, I always have comics and graphic novels on my mind. So I wanted <laughs> to start off by saying congratulations uh, on your win for the uh, 2022 Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story or Comic. Far Sector is amazing. Jamal Thank Campbell's you. art is stunning. Isn't it? Yeah. I can't. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's just amazing. How did this project start for you? Uh, have you always wanted to write comics? I've always had a sort of vague interest in it. Yeah, it wasn't really a strong urge because, you know, I was busy with my novel career. But after, I want to say it was the second Hugo or maybe the third one, <laughs> I got a call from DC and they set me up on a call with Gerard Way, who wanted to pitch this idea at me. When Gerard Way runs or ran DC's Young Animal line, Yep. You know, that was kind of primarily how I knew him. I knew vaguely that he was also a musician, but I was into hip hop back in the 90s. So <laughs> I didn't really know that part of him. I, I run into people all the time who are like, you've talked to Gerard Way? I'm like, I- yeah. <laughs> okay. Clearly that was a bigger deal than I realized. But yeah, so he had this idea for a, a Green Lantern comic that would be a Green Lantern that was like a sheriff on a frontier, you know, out there by themselves in a far away sector who would be in a futuristic society where they had outlawed love. And I took some immediate editing to that because love alone is an impossible thing to separate out from the complex of human emotion. Yes. I thought it would be better to kind of like play with like the Vulcan idea and just go no emotion period. (laughs) And as he talked to me about this, um, you know, the idea just kind of spun itself into existence in my head. The world um, started to form almost immediately. When my creative brain kind of immediately kicks in like that, I've learned to listen to it because usually that means something something good is is trying to yeah. c- come out. So that was basically it. <laughs> I said yes at that point. We started creating. Uh, there were some snafus as the young animal line got put on hiatus and then yes. came out of hiatus and yada yada. Mm-hmm. But we eventually got it out. So that's the bottom line. Yes, I mean COVID had its took its tolls on on everything, and I mean oh, that was actually won. before COVID, but yeah, <laughs> yes. But I mean, then I know that with the, specifically in the comic industry, just trying to get you know things mm. were just moving a little slower. But with yeah. the so with yeah. our sector, I feel like you made Green Lantern fun. You took the Green Lantern mythos. You sort of made it your own. Are there any other worlds that you'd like to explore in comics, in the comic space, or perhaps uh, a new comic project that you might be working on? Fingers crossed. Um, I've actually, you know, I've tossed around the idea of doing original comics, um, yeah. doing something independent. You know, I'm a big fan. My, my preference in comics is for indie comics. I'm not super into the big two. <laughs> when they first called me, I was like, Green Lantern. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> 
But, you know, then, you know, when he pitched his idea, the fact that it wasn't connected to the DC continuity was the thing that actually interested me. But, you know, my favorite comics are things like Monstrous by Sana Takeda and uh, Marjorie Liu. Kelly Sue DeConnick's Pretty Deadly. I have to check. I got to catch up and do Historia, Wonder Woman Historia, Mm -hmm. um, because I've heard such good things. And she sent me like a preview comic and I just I've been so go, go, go. I haven't looked at it yet. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I would be more interested in creating. But I haven't had time and I've just finished one book (laughs) and I'm working on short stories right now. And, you know, like it's just one person here. So we'll see what I can get done. Well, speaking of writing in uh, multimediums and, you know, keeping yourself busy, uh, you can now add screenwriter to that list. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you're currently adapting uh, your Broken Earth trilogy for the screen. Mm Mm-hmm. How has it been to return to the stillness and bring new life to those characters in this in this different way? It has been odd because mm-hmm. I mentally, when I move on from a series and start working on something new, I kind of like abandon it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having to go done. back to this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I have the brain space for one overarching world to encompass all of it at, at a time. That's fair. And it's hard to keep like two worlds in the same space. Yep. You know, I'm thoroughly in the mindset right now of the great cities, but then I've had to make, you know, kind of mental room to go back to this old world. And it has been interesting, you know, just in the sense of kind of learning more about how Hollywood works and so on. Um, Obviously, learning the screenplay format. Mm -hmm. This was my first time actually doing it. So I strongly urge them to have an experienced screenwriter on hand to (laughs) fix whatever I broke, because I expected that that would happen. And so I've done my part of it. I've finished the, I guess, third or fourth draft. Mm-hmm. That has now been given to the person that I asked for, uh, the, a, a closer, who is an expert uh, Hollywood screenwriter who will hopefully break it into scenes and do things that I don't know how to do and fix it, you know, wherever it's messed up. So um, because, you know, first timers on anything are going to mess that up. You know, of that's, course. That's, that's not a thing that is, you know, you just naturally come out of the womb knowing how to do uh, screenplays. Um, so that's been passed on to them, and then we'll see what happens from there. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, think just you. just kind of uh, you know, broadening this sort of visual, like you know, with comics and that visual storytelling, and then and now this, along with everything else mm-hmm. <laughs> you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, storytelling is storytelling ultimately, yeah. but the format the format frees you. The format helps you understand kind of what you can do. Mm-hmm. with arranging imagery and sounds and sensations. You know, the thing that I found really frustrating about working on the uh, the scripts is that I am used to throwing out visual uh, ideas. You know, I'm not really a visual person, but I'm used to kind of throwing out a, a scent, a taste, an image, and then letting people kind of form that on their own. Mm-hmm. I had only words to work with this time, only dialogue, really. And so that was kind of surprising and and strange. It's interesting. And I think that if I can master this format, there are some uh, unique storytelling things I could probably do with it. But it's going to take more practice for that. You essentially, you are sort of this character-driven author, Mm. you know, and and I think that's something, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that even when, and it's, it's, you know, interesting that you say that because it is true when you're reading, you do sort of form, you know, these characters whether it's just like you said, you, you're kind of placing those, you know, tastes here, touch there, but they do become so vibrant when, mm, uh, you know, for you. the reader, you know, when you're mm. reading them and you just kind of, you know, take on that journey and, you know, it goes from there, you know, as, as a reader, I think of your works, it, that's something that, you know, th- those characters sort of stay with you, you know, they're, they're haunting in, in the best way. Um, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> 
But, you know, that's it, it's a good thing. And I think, you know, it'll be really interesting because I think I've, you know, when as as a reader, I'm sure as, as someone who's written them, you know, you kind of you have this idea in your head. And so I think it'll be really interesting to um, to see that work, you mm. know, kind of take on a new medium and then to see other others interpretations and to kind of relive it in a way. Mm. So speaking of, uh, so the Broken Earth trilogy was uh, my entry into your work. And as I said, it sort of never, uh, never left me. You absolutely crush your readers by mixing uh, real world themes of, of cultural conflict and the human condition with, again, I'm going to use the word again, hauntingly reimagined worlds. <laughs> your latest series, The the Great Cities Duology, is is no exception. Uh, so Thank book, you. Book one, The City We Became, is sort of this joyride of magic and myth set in contemporary New York City. Avatars, one that delightfully personifies each of the city's five boroughs. And I've got my. <laughs> <laughs> I know um, this isn't visual, but I just flashed I know, a copy of the book across the screen. <laughs> and I'm I'm not a, a dog and a dog ear person. I don't normally I destroy. I'll say destroy books that way, but I do have. I'm like looking at all the, the dog <laughs> that I've made. It's the paperback, okay? Um, it's, it's all right. <laughs> okay, so we've got the you know these avatars that delightfully personify uh, each of the, the city's five boroughs. That they're, they're you know called together uh, to protect it. You know you touch on uh, cultural identity and privilege and gentrification, and it's just perfectly weird and witty and this wonderful mm. fantasy adventure and more. Book two, the final book, the world we make, picks up where you left us in book mm-hmm. one. Uh, our avatars have sort of temporarily managed to stop the woman in white, but New York is still fractured. It's impossible, and I, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, I promise, mm. but it's impossible to read the world we make without making, without making connections to U.S. Mm. politics, the current state of our world. But there's also this catharsis that's happening while you're reading it. It's this, this hope things can change. There are people, that there are people, um, you know, who care, who are willing to, you know, pick, on a, pick up this fight. That's why I love fantasy, because you can, you know, you can, you can sort of take all these things and give it this fantastical twist to it. Mm-hmm. I guess for some, it helps them understand things better, hopefully. <laughs> what was it? So what was it like, obviously, returning to this story now with, you know, with how things have sort of progressed in the world <laughs> and kind of bringing it? And again, no, sorry, no spoilers here, but I'm just going to say to a uh, very satisfying conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it was it was more difficult working on this yeah. book than it was working on the second one. The first one was written before the pandemic, uh, debuted literally March 2020. Yeah. So, you know, people were immediately like, oh, it's got so many ties to to COVID pandemic stuff. And I'm like, that was co- coincidental. Yeah. But actually writing it during the pandemic meant that I was writing it at a time when the city, which is effectively a character in the series, when the city itself was going through massive upheavals. You know, New York actually tried to do a kind of brief lockdown, um, Mm -hmm. which helped, but was, you know, nowhere near enough, of course. We uh, had a lot of changes to the way that the city began to operate. Like suddenly we had restaurants having uh, sidewalk cafes and and uh, I don't know what to call those things, little booths out in what used to be parking spaces. Yes. So many, many things changed in the city. And it was difficult trying to capture the character of the city at a time when that character was going through basically a midlife crisis. Yeah. I guess I did the best I could because that's all you can ever do. And of course, the the mayoral race for New York was actually happening while I was writing much of this. And in the story, this is not a spoiler. I think it's on the, the cover jacket. There is a mayoral campaign taking place, I yes. will just say. And so, you know, I ended up kind of doing like 
I don't know, fantasy football mayor race edition, um, New York mayor's race edition, um, where, um, where, you know, I was kind of like imagining my own mayoral candidate and my own process. So it was a lot of fun to do that. But it, it was especially challenging. Among other things, what I normally did to research the first book was to physically go to spaces in New York and kind of try to absorb its energy and translate that into the book. But because of COVID, a lot of things were closed. Mm -hmm. So I could not visit a lot of my usual attractions. I had to just kind of wing it. And yeah, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to write anything set in the real world after this. It's a lot harder <laughs> than just making things up. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's done. Yeah, no. And I think it's interesting because there are, I think people kind of, you know, talk about New York in, in, as a city. I mean, and, and this is where, you know, I live and, uh, mm. well, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn, but I consider mm. myself, you know, it's the city. And so it does kind of take on a life of its own. And you see that so much in media, you know, mm -hmm. in whether it be books, uh, mm -hmm. television shows. So, of course, obviously, it was very interesting to kind of literally see it personified, you know, that it's, mm. <laughs> it is kind of brought to life. But to what you were saying, you know, during COVID, it was, it was definitely um, it's an interesting time. Mm. And I know it was, it was an extremely hard time for, for many people. But for those, you know, who live in New York or call New York home, it was it was like a, a different place, a different world, you know, talking yeah. about, um, you know, not setting things in the real world and setting them in a fantastical world. I mean, at the time, I think New York didn't feel like a real world. In, in, in. Yeah, yeah, there were, you know, the the sort of itinerant New Yorkers that left, you know, anybody that had a, a house upstate or in the Poconos ran off to that. Yep. Um, I'm not really sure why, because I guess they perceived that it was safer there somehow. Meanwhile, we had, you know, uh, right-wing disinformation campaigns basically uh -huh. framing New York as like out of the Escape from New York movies back in the 80s, that New York was slowly, was not slowly, that the New York had turned into this weird apocalyptic place where, where cars were on fire and people were murdering each other in the streets. It was just quiet. It was boring. Yeah. Um, there was there was nothing happening. I don't know where they got that from. I will say traffic was fabulous. Uh, traffic was it, amazing. As My as God. there was none. Yeah. Yeah, know. yeah. You know. But no, it was, I mean, you know, and I... Uh, two small kids and we just tried mm -hmm. to, you know, go outside. And again, you know, you didn't know what was going mm -hmm. on. And so you, you know, you kind of tried your best. And, but at the same yeah. time, you know, we, if you were staying in the city, you had to sort of continue your life. The subways were running on a different schedule. Yep. You know, I mean, and among other things, I have older friends here. You know, my father lives here in the city and, and I've lived here on and off. But I have older friends in the city who were talking about how it suddenly started to feel like old New York. Yeah. Um, because the people who left were like the newcomers that have been slowly gentrifying it. Um, and what was left were the people who didn't have houses in the Poconos. Um, and, you know, they were just living their lives the way that New Yorkers always have. And they were like, wow, you know, I I went to a store that I've never been that I haven't been able to get into for years. Uh, you know, I saw friends and, you know, we we went off and did some of the fun things that we haven't been able to do for years because stores took it over. So, you know, it's it was fascinating uh, in good and bad ways. Yes. But what it meant was that it was massively in flux and it's difficult to sort of pin down um, what a city is like under those conditions. I've seen this this book sort of referred to as like a love letter to New York City. And as much as it is, it's, it's you know, like with, like in any relationship, any love, there's, you know, there, like I said, there is those sort of ups and downs and the goods mm -hmm. and the bads. And, but ultimately yeah. your affections, you know, are the same. So I think that 
it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting. And and I can't imagine, like, you know, to what I was saying, uh, how, you know, starting starting with this book one and then having to just jump back in, giving everything, you know, that was happening. So bravo to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because it's just so wonderfully done. Now that you have, so duology, so now that you wrapped up this series for now, looking back, what was your favorite part of this writing experience? Uh, did you have a favorite character to write or was there a scene that was particularly difficult to work through? Uh, I didn't really have a favorite character since it's an un- ensemble cast, you know, like whenever I switch into a character's POV, you know, basically during that time, I love that character. That's my mm-hmm. favorite character. It was amusing when the first book came out when people were kind of like, oh, I know which which Burrow is is NK's favorite Burrow. And I'm like, oh, which one do you think it is? And they were always wrong. So it's Brooklyn. Brooklyn is my favorite Burrow. But in the first book, I deliberately put her in the background yes. because she was one of the characters that didn't get her own arc in that book. Mm-hmm. I'm a very shallow one, I guess. Um, because, you know, the whole point was to sort of decenter my own experiences and try to capture New York as it was and not just as I like it. I mean, of course, it's going to be, you know, my my personal bias was going to be in there. So I would say my absolute favorite scenes to write, really, they were all over the place. But there's a scene in the second book that I thought was funny and is sort of ironic because we're on a Zoom call now. And it's when <laughs> the avatars end up on a Zoom call with the woman in white. Um, and it turns into an eldritch horror Zoom call. I would say that was probably fun. That was yeah. probably my favorite. I mean, there is definitely, um, yeah, there's a lo- little bit of Lovecraft uh, elements. Mm-hmm. I-, I loved, uh, I-, I think mm-hmm. right away, uh, I mean, capital the woman, capital W, capital T, capital W, woman in white. <laughs> the nubs, the tendrils, the feathers, depending on who, you know, who who's <laughs> looking at them. Absolutely. And I think it's it's so interesting to sort of, again, get, get that take on that that horror and bringing that into the city, bringing that sort of um, old school, I guess, uh, you know, science fiction and kind of updating it with a, a twist that maybe it should have always had. <laughs> and it, interesting what, you know, you're talking about characters and how um, whoever you were writing, you know, whoever mm-hmm. the, the point of view, that's, you know, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. You can't pick favorites and this is my favorite. And I know I've heard you speak about this before about Manny and sort of having him be, be the outsider so that it could be, you, you could sort of open New York to p- someone who who has never been here. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, for someone reading this book who who lives in this city, who's lived in this city, you know, you pick up all those, you know, you're talking about FDR Drive and, uh, you know, all the parks <laughs> and everything. And you're, you're like, oh, yeah, I know. You know, you kind of are able to have those moments. But then also, if you've never been to New York through, you know, sort of Manny's eyes, you... Mm-hmm. You get that experience. So that was, and that was a conscious, you said that that was a conscious choice to try mm-hmm. to make it so that it was accessible to anyone. Well, that plus also I'm a transplant to New York. Mm-hmm. I was not born here. I was born in Iowa. Granted, uh, my parents moved here when I was like a toddler. So I've known New York since I was a tiny child. But, you know, I shuffled back and forth between my parents after they got their divorce. And then I lived most of my early life in other cities, in Mobile, Alabama, and Boston, and the the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, um, New Orleans, all of that. So I didn't really move back to New York permanently as an adult until 2007. That was a transplant experience. I had not expected it to be. I thought I knew New York before that. But literally coming here to live is a whole different experience from visiting every summer um, to live with your dad. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden, I, you know, I, I thought I knew the subway system. I did not. I got lost like crazy. 
I thought that I was physically ready for New York, but I had lived in Boston up to that point, driving a car all the time and then suddenly walking. I was suddenly getting myself into like much better physical shape, but I was exhausted for like that whole first month I was here and things like that. So, you know, I wanted to convey that part of my own experience of New York. The fact that New York will test you when you first come to this city. People here sort of jokingly say, if you get through your first year as a New Yorker, then you decide whether you like the city or not. Um, That first year is just going to be brutal. (laughs) No matter what, whether you like it or not, you're not going to like that year. But then you decide. Then you move on. Right. So I, I just thought that that was necessary to capture both my own experience and also to invite new people into the series so that it wasn't feeling like it was just for New Yorkers. When I uh, first came here, I, a parent of one of my uh, friends had said to me, oh, you know, I think they kind of looked at me like I was, you know, I was coming to New York like a, almost like it was a phase, like it was going to be a phase. Mm-hmm. And um, which is interesting. I remember her saying to me, you know, like, be careful, like the longer you, um, the longer you'll stay in the city or the longer you stay in New York, like the harder it will be to leave. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking like, that was such an odd statement. but like you know when you're when you're like 18 you're like okay you know like whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then yeah but new yorkers always give that warning because then it becomes hard to leave it does (laughs) you had and who is it now i'm like gonna go through you had this line and like in the very beginning again a little my dog my dog eared pages i was like oh let me hopefully i remember which way it was and i did early on and and i remember uh, in in the first book um in, Mm -hmm. in the city we became you said nearly two million people He's been here for one hour, but already he feels like he's never lived anywhere else. Um, Mm. And if he doesn't know who he is, that comment came right back to me when I read that. Mm -hmm. Because I think it is, you know, once you get over that sort of hump, (laughs) you know, that those growing pains, Mm -hmm. you do, you can't kind of imagine Mm. being anywhere else. So obviously, you know, there's lots of New York here, but there's also other great cities and sort of this, the idea of this, of birthing, you know, these cities kind of coming, coming to life. Where did that come from? And again, with all great cities and there, you know, there have been those that were, you know, great at a certain point of time and then maybe have sort of died. And, you know, or I'm going to use that died because that's how we kind of, you know, referring mm-hmm. to these, you know, personifying mm-hmm. cities. And then those, you know, we, we've got these lost cities and, and then those that, you know, these great cities that continue. So how did that come about? So something that I was alluding to with that line from Manny about he's been here one hour mm-hmm. and because it, the the inspiration for this was just traveling and the fact that when I travel and I, I've talked to other people who've had a similar experience, um, but when I travel to a new city, usually immediately, like the moment I step off the plane, you know, or the moment that I'm taking the cab or the the tram or whatever to to wherever I'm going to be staying. I get that instant sense of whether I could live in the city or whether the city is not a place for me. You know, it's usually a very quick, oh, wow, the air here has a quality that I like. There's a smell to the air that I like. People smile or people are indifferent, but they're not hostile and indifferent, um, you know, or whatever. And usually you get a sense fairly quickly of whether a city is a place where you would be happy or whether that city does not like you and does not want you there. And so I just started to think about that. What if the city is immediately like grabbing onto its people, pushing away those who aren't its people? And that's 
pretty much all my weird brain needs to to run with an idea. So at that point, I was like, okay, so, you know, what happens if the city doesn't like you, but you decide to stay anyway? Okay, so we have to talk about the adversarial relationship between people in their cities. Um, you know, what if you try to like bludgeon the city into submission? I actually did that with Boston. I moved to Boston and lived there for eight years. And I tried my best to make that work because it was cheaper than New York. It was cleaner than New York in some ways. You know, I <laughs> I, I could have my car there and I didn't have to move it every other minute. I understand. <laughs> yeah. And I and I thought Boston, I really thought Boston was going to work for me. It was close to New York so I could visit my father, but it did not. It was just not the city for me. And Boston let me know at every possible opportunity that it did not want me there. Um, and finally, I gave up the ghost and moved to New York where New York was like, come on, baby, we got you. We'll take care of you. It's okay. <laughs> You'll come here. No, that's. So, yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, and it's funny because I, I feel like my friends who, you know, live outside the city and they'll talk about, um, pizza, you know, things randomly. I'm just going to say the pizza because it makes me think of that line, you know, when they're looking at the Sabaros and it's like, ah, like there's like that visceral. Oh, kind of like, no, not Sparrow. You know, like they, <laughs> but then they go, you know, then it's like the, you know, the, the local bodega and, and it's like, oh, this is, this is calming and this, this feels right. good. And and right. I know like my friends will come in and, you know, we'll, we'll say, oh, you want to get, you know, food? And they're like, oh, you want to get Domino's? And I, I can't even, I'm no, like, I'm no, like, it has to be a Domino's slice. Yes. Like scratching my neck. Slice. And I'm like, we don't, we don't do that here. Like we don't like. Now granted, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to say a, a blasphemy here, which is that I don't like New York pizza. <laughs> New York pizza is yes. Don't give me that look. Um, New York pizza is designed for portability. It is not yes. made to be tasty. It's edible. It's, it, it can be tasty. Yes. Um, but it is designed to fold so that you can walk and eat at yeah. the same time. And I prefer to have sit-down pizza. So um, I yeah. will say I had my uh, husband's from Connecticut and he mm -hmm. had introduced me to because I had only known New York pizza. Like that was that was it. That was, mm -hmm. you know, this is this is this is what you this is pizza. He had introduced me to New Haven style pizza, which kind of I will what say is New Haven style pizza. It's like a oh gosh. No, I'm like, <laughs> it's so it's like a thin, it's a thinner crust and it's okay. like crunchy and it's kind of like charred a little bit on the crust, but it's, okay. yeah, it's like thinner and crunchy. And it's honestly to, to what you were saying about how, you know, like blasphemy, like, I don't want to, this is something, and I can't believe now I'm saying this because everyone's going to hear this. I'm, I'm thinking mm -hmm. like, as if I'm talking to you personally, like don't, <laughs> don't tell anyone as I'm saying this. <laughs> they, I'm like, oh, everyone's going to know yep, this now. Nope, nope. Uh, your, your, your taste for New York pizza is now out there. Dig in the You're grave. You're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> just got to deal with it. But, you know, and I'm never going to admit to this again, but um, I will say that, yeah, that was, I had that taste and it was like, this mm -hmm. is again, not, you don't fold it. You can't fold it because it'll yep. just, you, you know, can't. but it sounds it, like it'll break. Yeah. Yes. It's delicious. And then, huh. and then I found out there's this whole world of there and these different pizzerias and who, and who, what's your favorite. And it's very much like New York, you know, like where, where do you, <laughs> you know, everyone has their opinion on where you get your best slice. It's just so interesting, again, thinking about these these cities and the people that inhabit them and the people who, you know, that, that there is love there for them and that they are invited in to stay mm -hmm. and, or where they feel, mm -hmm. you know, where they feel loved and so passionate about whether it's just the city, their history, their pizza, whatever it is you know, you kind of have this, this fondness. When I was researching the first book, I visited uh, Staten Island quite a bit. I began to realize Staten Island has its own style of pizza. It is more seafood oriented. There's more white sauce and less red sauce. There's a, a lengthy passage about Danino's, <laughs> um, which is a real place uh, in the second book. You know, no offense, Danino's. I liked the pizza, uh, you know, but it's an Eldridge 
abomination fantasy horror story and things happen there. Um, but uh, nothing bad. Anyway. <laughs> But yeah, so so that to me was kind of fascinating, was realizing each borough had its own style of pizza on top of there being New York pizza. New York. Oh, anyway. yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, even in my yeah. neighborhood, this, this, I can't get, don't even bring it up, the two sort of dueling uh, pizza shops. I was trying to find a way to work chopped cheese in, but I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, chopped cheeses are are a New York specific sandwich that is primarily uh, located in the Bronx. And I was trying to find ways to work in all these other quirky New York foods, and I couldn't. So uh, no chopped cheese in the book. Sorry, said I did say uh, you know in my in my previous uh, question f- for now because I feel like you kind of left some groundwork. Should you want to return to this world? Should you want to explore yeah. chopped cheese? Uh, uh, so are there? Any- <laughs> The magic of chopped cheese. This is going to be, this is, you know, the, the one-off short story or maybe <laughs> a nude holiday. So, uh, just on that, you probably could do that. Uh, so any, so any plans, yeah, <laughs> any plans for that in the future? Originally, it was going to be a trilogy and that probably yes. shows. There are still open ends that I could choose to explore. There will be one fairly obvious one that people will realize by the end of the the second book, um, which unfortunately is a spoiler, so I can't discuss in detail. Uh-oh. But that was a, a clear direction that I could probably go. If the urge hits me, then great. Um, as it is, though, I just wanted the story to be complete in and of itself within the two books. Because I A, I've, I've started feeling the urge to try and work on other projects. And B, I just... Like I said, the, the the world changed so much mm-hmm. while I was working on this. New York changed so much. It is a love letter to New York, but I know New York as well as I used to anymore. New York is a different city now than it used to be at the very beginning of this, this series. It would have to wait for me to have a better sense of what I would want to do with the story. And that may never happen. So that's why I wanted to leave it, you know, closed ended um, just for the sake of just for readers sake. So we'll see. I may return to it. It's certainly possible. Yeah. And that Bronx chopped cheese uh, <laughs> short story. Yeah. Uh, I just want to uh, if I can get a mention in that, you know, if, <laughs> if that comes out, sure. just saying. Sure. If I write it. <laughs> OK. OK. And so now uh, I'm going to I have to ask this, but it's just something completely random. I have to ask about. Ozymandias, King of Kings, <laughs> look on my works, ye mighty in despair. <laughs> you just of, saw him a little while ago, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> of course, of course I'm referring to your cat and not uh, two vast and trunkless legs of stone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also, I had a ferret when I was younger uh, that was oh. named Ozymandias. I was quite tickled uh, to read that you had a cat with the same name. And for me, it was it was endless, you know, obviously when you're, you know, 16 and, and you name you name a ferret, Ozymandias, people, <laughs> everyone is just automatically assumed it was, you know, I was very into music. Everyone was like, oh, Ozzy Osbourne. I was like, no, I am a person. Where, where would am, they get that from? How does that have to do anything to do with? I know. Wow, okay. And I, I kind of huh. was like, no, I'm a person. Like, if you hadn't noticed, I'm a gothic literature. <laughs> like, like everything <laughs> at that point about me was like goth and gothic literature. It was like, mm. no, no, no. Percy mm-hmm. Shelley, like, let's go <laughs> right, <laughs> right, this right. way. Does he live up to the name? Not anymore. Ozzy <laughs> is is actually kind of elderly, and he's the elder statesman of my household. And I brought in a new uh, disaster, Magpie, uh, <laughs> whose, whose full name is Marvelous Master Magpie. Um, but Magpie is now like four, maybe five years old. 
for quite a while because he was the younger cat and kittens are just forces of destruction. He's the one causing all of the, the, the destruction. Ozzy has pretty much figured out, like, there are certain things that he wants to do. Like, I've learned I can't keep him out of interviews because when there is a door closed, he's like, challenge accepted. I'm going to throw <laughs> myself against this door until I figure out how it opens. And so, you know, the interview would consist of the sound of a cat flinging himself against a door. But uh, yeah, he's not as destructive now in his advanced age. Um, he is now very set in his ways and he knows what he wants. He earned that name as he should have uh, in his younger years. So it is a mighty name. Uh, uh, I do remember, <laughs> you know, when I would explain, you know, no, it's it's Ozymandias, you know, and kind of do a little. Technically, it's Ozymandias because it has to include the invisible orange. That's true. You can't see this, but I'm making the invisible orange gesture. But his name is yes. King Ozymandias King. with invisible orange held. Yes. And he is an orange an, an orange cat or ginger. A ginger he is a cat. ginger cat. He is a ginger cat. He is 100% fitting every possible stereotype of ginger cats, except that he's a little smarter than most of them. So, yeah. (laughs) Obviously, now I'm going to ask you, because, you know, for Mm -hmm. for me, that poem was part of this sort of gothic literature journey that I was was on. What was your earliest inspirations, literature inspirations? Probably fairy tales. Yeah, as a, as a small kid, I, I started out reading, you know, fairy tales and kind of kiddie science fiction. I forget the author's name, but there was a series of books about mushroom people traveling to another world and meeting mushroom people. That sounds like it would do well now. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could remember the name of those mushroom people books. But, you know, I basically just started reading stuff like that and I never stopped. I tried reading, you know, kind of things that were more mundane and set in the real world. And I kept mentally adding dragons to them or, um, you know, I don't know, Catch-22, but if it had elves (laughs) or whatever. I, of course, read all of the traditional things that kids in American schools are, well, used to be taught to read. Mm. These days, we're dealing with such a censorship problem. I have no idea what the kids are reading, if anything. So I grew up reading those books and always thinking, well, you know, this would be much better if it was in a completely different world other than ours um, and so on. And so that's just how my brain tends to work. I've, I've never really stopped reading fairy tales. I've just aged them up into more complex things. And made them mm-hmm. your own in, in a way. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, my inspirations come from all over the place. So. I think anything, any book is better with dragons. Mm. I think that's a kind of a universal, <laughs> a universal or, or mushroom. Sounds like people. a good slogan. Yeah. Or mushroom people or, or elves. Um, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there is, there is something, I mean, I will say, you know, you know, to this day and it, it did stem, you know, from when you're, you know, younger, or when I was younger, um, that magical, whether it was magical realism or whether, or straight, you know, fantasy, science fiction, sometimes the real world can be, it's hard even if the world is still hard <laughs> in that fantasy world, just to, you know, change it up a bit and to sort of, you know, add that sort of fantastical element. It's still my comfort zone to this day. I think when people ask me, you know, what, what do you read? It's like, mm. I, I try to read, you know, I try to sound academic. Oh, I read lots of, you know, lots of, but when in reality, it's, it's, yeah, it's comics and mm. <laughs> science fiction, <laughs> fantasy. That's my comfort read. That's my, you know, curl up on a, curl up on a cold day and, and that's, mm. you know, or if things are not, you know, having a bad day, like that's sort of, that's the escape. Mm. And I think it is for a lot of people, you know, that escape. I was taught Lord of the Flies in school as, you know, this is what people are like without the constraints of civilization, yada, yada, yada. That's not true. The actual Lord of the Flies was written specifically to be about 
like British schoolboys that have grown up in this kind of hothouse boarding school, private school life where they are torturing each other. And so these are kids that are that have already been kind of trained to be emotionally detached, sort of sociopathic, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they got dropped in that island and they lost their damn minds. In real life, we know that there have been some cases of literal, there there was a case of some schoolboys from Tonga um, who ended up caught on a desert island and they took care of each other. They hunted and fished for each other. Um, one of them broke, uh, I want to say, broke his leg, and they took care of him until it healed. They set it for him. You know, so in the real in real life, actual people do not act like this. Yes. Um, but what if we took Lord of the Flies and made them werewolves? And then that explains why they, they are not <laughs> acting like normal people, <laughs> you know? So it hangs a lampshade on the fact that this is not normal behavior, that they're human, but there's something else going on here. And the idea of trying to universalize human behavior within um, these stories that are so centered, so narrowly focused on one demographic group, it's almost a way to kind of highlight the fact that, you know, this this is not as universal as you think it is, I guess. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. That makes sense. No, I love it. I love it. And it's so true. It's, you know, that it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when people say people have a little too much to drink and, oh, you know, I, I only mm. acted this way because I, I was, you know, I had this. And it's like, no, no, no. You acted that way because yeah. you were amplified. You were in an environment that yeah. sort of perpetuated yeah. that that behavior that's this already is who you really are this is who yeah. you really are yeah so that's so yeah your inhibitions it. came off that's really what happened that's exactly yeah, yeah. that's what happened mm -hmm. oh, interesting mm. so this has been wonderful i'm gonna i have to ask you one last question because i'm always looking for book recommendations and i always love to know mm. what others are reading i feel like it's like a little insight into who you are these you know these <laughs> medium that you consume so what are you reading now or what was the last book that you read that you really loved? I'm going to mention two here because I've been struggling to read. Um, and so what I've been doing lately is going back and rereading stuff that I used to love that I know I've read before. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also reading basically only authors that I know I whose work I enjoy. The stuff that I've been rereading um, lately, uh, one has been Genevieve Valentine's Mechanique. It is a, a difficult to find book. It was, a, I think, a small press or something like that published a few years ago. But it's in kind of post-apocalyptic world following a circus of mechanical and cyborgified people. Um, and it is delightfully dark and weird and, and kind of hauntingly written. Um, so I'm enjoying that one. The one from the author whose work I is like, auto buy is Martha Wells' latest book, The Witch King, which I think is coming out soon. I've been a fan of Martha for ages at this point. You know, I will cautiously say that uh, we've we've ch started trying to form a friendship too. Um, so, you know, caveats, because these are both friends. The writing world is small. We all know each other. But The Witch King was great. And I think people are going to really enjoy that. So I don't know if she wants people talking about what it's about. <laughs> But I will just say it's in a completely secondary world. She does second worlds that I would love to not visit, but she does secondary worlds that I admire the hell out of. It is once again an examination of a 
cranky protagonist who is cr- cranky hyper competent protagonist who is trying to deal with all of the madness around him and all of the ridiculous people around him and i think it will be fun i was just thinking in my head i'm like if it's anything like the murder bots there's a personality type that a lot of her characters a lot of her protagonists tends to fit and this character fits that personality type to a t so they're always fun they're always fun and another book that's mm-hmm. always fun yours the city we became The first book in the Great Cities duology, The World We Make, which is the second book. Nora, thank you again. This has been wonderful. The World We Make, the stunning conclusion to the Great Cities duology is out now. Thank you. Go pick up a copy. (laughs) Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The World We Make. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. I'm Madison, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. We've got a couple of great books to talk about today. Uh, Madison, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Right ahead. Thank you, because I'm very excited for this book. Uh, The City We Became was one of my favorites when it was released. It's so much fun, uh, and I've been waiting for a while for the sequel. So I will be picking this up ASAP. It made me think of a book that I really enjoyed that kind of mixes genres. Um, and that is All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. This is just such a fun adventure. It's entertaining, it's heartwarming, and it mixes science fiction, fantasy, dystopia in the best possible way. So we follow two main characters, Patricia, who is a nature-inclined witch, and Lawrence, who is a tech-inclined genius. You follow them from childhood into adulthood, where they are using their gifts for magic and science, respectively, to upend tyranny and protect humanity. Although sometimes it is the other way around. The themes of power and how that corrupts is... uh, heavily influenced on these characters' stories. I really enjoy these two characters. I really love Charlie Jane Anders and her writing. If you just want something fun that mixes your genres and just gives you a great ride, please check out All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. Madison, what do you have for us? I chose Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, and I love this book. I often say Kaz Brecker is one of my many toxic traits. <laughs> he is one of my favorite characters. So in Six of Crows, you have that beautiful like found family kind of trope. And you have a group of six. They're a ragtag team. You have a person who is like a wraith so she can scale and climb anything without being seen. You have the mastermind. You have Mina, who is the one with magic. Uh, she is a Grisha, which if you kind of, the Six of Crows is part of that Grisha verse. So it is from this shadow and bone world. And they all come together to complete this one task that no one else can. So you need all of these ragtag team of talents to, they have to break in, figure out what the root of this like new drug that's spreading is. And basically save the day, only it's morally gray, so kind of not save the day. It is just a wonderful story. It does have multiple point of views, which I know can be kind of iffy with some people, but I think Bardugo does it in such a way that keeps you reading because you're like, I need to get back to like Kaz's chapter. I need to get to the next Nina chapter. 
It is so amazing. And that is Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. Nice choice. And I do appreciate a POV swap around. It's always a good sign when you miss the character that you're not reading about. So nice pick. I feel like six POVs, you would think it would get messy. But in the Six of Crows duology, it doesn't. It is beautifully done. Nice. Yay. Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, you can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty easy. I am Mark, and you can follow my home store at BN Westchester. I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.